uh, 13. And before we were a time back uh, working through Matthew 13 to see all the parables, uh, there's no place uh, in all the Gospels particularly that has the most condensed uh, parables of Jesus Christ uh, in chapter 13 of Matthew. And I'd like to begin by just reading the very end of that chapter uh, where it speaks about those parables and then um, actually get into the new uh, part of what Jesus is going to teach here. Um, chap, uh, chapter 13, verse 47, um, to the end of the chapter. That was an audible. I'm looking up on the stage because that wasn't the plan. I apologize ahead of time. Well, after time. Sorry. Now I apologize. I'm sorry. It's always good to try to model Humble forgiveness as a pastor. In front of the whole church with a microphone. All right, so, um, uh, 47 says this. Jesus is speaking about his very final parable, and he says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is uh, like a net that was thrown into the sea uh, and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw the bad away. He says, so it will be at the end of the age. Uh, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace uh, in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we say that just to set us in context. This is Jesus just finishing these parables, a series of ones like the one I just read to you. Then he turns and says this, have you understood all these things? And you know like all of us, the disciples actually didn't uh, but fully understand. But they said, yeah, uh, yeah, we get it. So they said, yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of the house who brings out his treasures, out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So this sermon series is entitled, Who is He? We find here is as Jesus has these episodes throughout the gospel in which he's saying mighty things and doing mighty things. And then he pauses and says many mighty things. And then he transitions to doing mighty things. Now he just completed uh, one of his great discourses in chapter 13 of all the parables. Um, he's going to go on uh, in chapter 18 to speak about the church. In chapter 23, you have the Olivet Discourse. We went through his great discourse called the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7. And then chapters 10, he also had this great discourse where he spoke with his disciples. 
Now, Jesus just finished one of his great teachings, the teachings of the parables. And he decided that he was tired, perhaps, wanted to reprieve, wanted to reorient or recenter, and he goes back home uh, to Nazareth, where he's from. And what we do here in this portion of Matthew, we'll look, look at from this chapter at the end of 13 all the way to chapter 17, is that there's this theme. And I hope that the theme becomes more and more evident and beautiful and clear as the weeks progress to see uh, that the whole question being posed here is who is this man? Who is he? And we know that Jesus Christ actually, in fact, is the Lord of glory. In fact, he uh, manifests himself at times to people, not all people in all places this way, but he does manifest himself as the Lord of glory. And people actually behold who Jesus truly is, his real identity. And this sermon series is essentially getting at that question, that one question of who is he? And perhaps it is the case uh, that you actually have apprehended uh, the identity of Jesus Christ. Uh, And that's why you're here. Um, Perhaps it is the case um, that you're exploring that. I know from speaking to some, uh, particularly here in this church, that this is a moment in their life in which they are actually first time really considering who Jesus is. So whether it be the first time you discover the glory of Jesus Christ, or whether it is the 50th time, there's a certain beauty here. Because we're talking about Jesus Christ as being the Lord of glory. Glorious things are not simply just learned and moved beyond. Especially a thing that we speak of as the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. As he is apprehended to us through the word of God, by the spirit of God. So to answer the question, who is he? We could even ask another question. Why are we here this morning? Perhaps you're here because a friend invited you. Or perhaps you're here um, uh, because your parents are here. Or perhaps you're here because you've been walking with the one true and living God for 50 or 60 years. Contrary to what uh, we might think, If we come to know who Jesus is, it's not as though we came to just know some fact about the world. In which it's like you were in first grade and there's really no need to go back. I have that pretty much well well hammered out. Um, What we're saying is, you have perceived the Lord of glory. The one who made it all. You can never move past this. This is heaven. This is everything. So there's a need to worship him. A need to feed upon him. It's not as though you have breakfast and you're like, I've tried that before. You don't wake up the next day and be like, been there, done that. It's like, I'll tell you, if I smell bacon, I'd like to try it again. It's just an honest fact. There's a certain type of knowledge here That isn't just an informational thing. It is, he is my life. Not only do I, have I come to know Jesus, I must feed upon him. I must have him regularly. He is, as we sang, more precious than gold, more valuable than silver. 
My life is predicated on him in a much more substantial way than my breakfast. Tonight, somebody on the West Coast, perhaps in California, where the sun sets beautifully, will be relaxing on a beach. And they will see the glory of that sunset. And I doubt they'll say, well, I've seen one of those before already. That's not how this works, you see. There's something to what's called a knowledge of beauty. That is itself, each time the discovery happens, a value of its own. Now what if you could learn of the God who made the sunsets? Of all the glories of this world, being singularly focused in Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of glory. That'd be my answer if someone would ask, why are we here today? That's the one I like. (laughs) This joy of discovery, Peter describes it. Apostle who walked with him. In one of his letters, 1 Peter 1.16, he said, "Um, We made known to you uh, the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. When he received honor and glory from God the Father, as from the God the Father, the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, saying, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. See, Jesus is being referenced to there in this moment, a moment in which we will actually conclude this sermon series, in which Jesus Christ was transfigured before Peter's eyes. And in the letter he wrote, Let me tell you something. I've seen who he is. He's marvelous. He's more than a carpenter's son. And there was a voice born from heaven. It was um, the word majestic glory. What does that mean? I've looked it up in commentaries. And everyone says, I don't know. It's very beautiful though. It's like a word of just, it's amazing. Majestic glory. I've seen that. So that's where we're going. That's what this is. That we would find in some way to perceive Christ as as Peter came to know him. But we know first that God had clothed his own glory in flesh. That is the Jesus we meet now. Particularly today. As we read. That God has clothed, hidden his glory, compartmentalized it, if it were ever possible, inside human flesh. He voluntarily condescended to us and made himself appear common to us. Though he's not common. He's not common at all. He's the most uncommon thing there is. He's his own being, sui generis from all of creation. There is nothing like him. At least there's something like us in the planet Jupiter. There is nothing, even in creation, that you could find any analogy to say that God can relate to us. He is above and beyond. Yet in his own transcendence, he has made it possible to relate to us. To reveal himself to us. And look at this phrase. They say, is, is not um, this the carpenter's son? 
people in Nazareth. It's like, all right, so you went off to New York City and you came back to Harrison City and everyone's like, all right, so you're a big deal. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Is not uh, his mother uh, called Mary? I think I know her. Um, we used to do uh, play dates when he was little. Are not his brothers uh, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Oh yeah, yeah, I work with them. Are not his sisters presently now, even in the context, the way the language plays out, living in this city with us now? His sisters are, we know them. They're, they're right down the street. We know their address. And it concludes by saying this, and they took, the remarkable thing, they took offense at him. That's it. That's, that's, that's the place we're going. Why? That's the question. They, they end by saying, and now I'm offended. Why? Like, because he's from where you're from? Yeah, that's it. That's exactly it. See, the contemporary problem, we know this, right? The first string quarterback uh, is more likely to be at odds with the second string quarterback uh, than with the lineman on the football team. Because they're very close Related, they're actually trying to do the same thing. It's that commonality. They're similar, and there's a competition for that role, and so they're going to be at odds with one another. But they're probably going to be fine with Tom, who's like the 300-pound lineman. They're like, "Yeah, you're great, Tom. I just don't like this guy who's kind of like me and doing my job almost as good as me." Right? You see how that works in our human reality? It's the uh, orchestra when you have the the first violin and the second violin. Uh, they probably don't have any problems with the tuba player. It's just the way it works. I'm fine with a tuba player. He's doing a great job. That person over there that did that last note really well, ooh, I don't, you know what, they're, they're, they're weird, you know. Um, see, that's our sinful nature. The adage is, second violin. No one likes to be the second fiddle. But the reason is because they're so similar, so common, so close. Offense. The closeness of Offense. You probably don't know. And the fact that you don't know this next fact proves my point. And if you do, then please don't tell me. It ruins the whole analogy. Uh, 2021, uh, a few years ago, Jeff Bezos uh, bought a house uh, in Hawaii uh, for $87 million. It was estimated at. Now, I don't even know what $87 million of anything is. Like, I wouldn't, that number means nothing to me, especially when it comes to money. But he, that's what he did a few years ago. He bought a, a compound for $87 million estimated at, in Hawaii. Um, and I'm not particularly bothered by that. I don't even understand it. Uh, see, he, it's just, I'm not even, it doesn't even bother us. We don't even know about that. God condescended in all his magnificent glory on a mountain called Sinai. And he gave a particular command, 10 of them. But he came in Sinai with such power and glory and lightning and thunder. It was transcendent. It was fearful, awe-inspiring. And in those commands he gave while he was on that mountain, the 10th one says this, 
You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's male or female servant, your neighbor's ox or donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's, your neighbor's, the ones who are over there, the ones who are kind of like you. If you're in Nazareth, they're the ones that live with you in Nazareth. If all you can afford is one ox, they're the other people that can only afford one ox. And when they get one ox, don't covet them. Because you see, they're kind of like you. You can look over the fence and see what they are and what you're not. That similarity is a little different than living in Hawaii. But that is the whole point of the command. It's the neighbor. It's the closeness of it that makes all the offense. But the remarkable thing is right after he says that, that God gives this great command, do not covet. The very, I mean the very next verse says this. When all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound and the trumpet and the mountain filled with smoke, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood afar off. Distance. Nobody at that mountain was coveting God. They actually said, we're so afraid, Moses, only you speak to us. Let God not speak to us or we die. So there's that. There was no temptation to covet God in that moment. In fact, they wanted greater distance from God. He was so different than us. He was, he was fearful. In fact, we would rather have Moses. How about you go to God for us? Let's make some more distance. We don't want him very close. We don't want him in our camp. We will die because of the existential pressure or weight of the kavod, the glory of God's holiness, weighing down upon their very body and conscience. I must stay away. Distance. Now the greatest of all the ironies is this. As we read here, Jesus, Jesus is too close for comfort. They're astonished by him. He's amazing how he says what he does and the miracles and the acts of power. And they're offended by him. Not afraid of him, but offended by him. It says that he taught in their synagogues. And they were all astonished. Now where does this man get this wisdom and his mighty works, they say? Is he not the carpenter's son? See, is he not uh, the son of Mary? Don't we know his uh, brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? See, the closeness is that that same God who met them on the mountain with all his raw, unbridled glory is the same God living with them in Nazareth. But his glory is covered in flesh. And it's not clear to them at all. And now they're offended. They asked the wrong question. They asked, where did he get these things? They should have asked, who is he? Not where did he, but who is he? 
There was a difference here. They couldn't see at all. He's just a carpenter's son like us. He's just a guy that lives in this normal town like us. Where does he get off thinking he should be a rabbi and expound scripture and be able to say all these great things? Where did he, as opposed to who is he? Who is Jesus Christ? That's the question they missed entirely. Do you see the problem here? The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. The first time God came down on a mountain, transcended demonstration of power and glory, gave these Ten Commandments with a descended glory that gives a decalogue, and particularly says, now do not covet, and they're all afraid, and they run away. And fellowship with God that could have been there is broken because of this fear of God's absolute awesome wonder and majestic glory that actually says, no, I cannot come to the foot of that mountain. I cannot descend to commune and be with the one true and living God. I would much rather die. So there's that one aspect to the problem. But see, it doesn't change. What if God were to come close? Intimately makes himself imminently known. What if he didn't come down with all his glory? What if he just makes himself known? Clothes himself in flesh. Born into this world. Born of a woman. And then he does some amazing things and astonishes people. The same distance, you see. First, they were afraid... Now, they're offended. Either way, we do not want him. Do you see the problem? The problem is the heart. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. It doesn't matter whether God manifests himself to you purely and clearly. It doesn't matter if he comes to you quietly and mysteriously. The fact is, we are sinners. That's the problem. And we Want not God. No man desires God, Romans says. That similar offense actually occurs today. What if God were to reveal himself to you? The fact is, and this is when I speak with people sometimes, and they're like well, trying to explain the faith or, or make, a, make a defense for the faith, and it comes to the point of just saying, you have to do this. You literally have to just see the whole world again. Open your eyes. Everything you're seeing is evidencing God to you. Every moment of every second. It's not the lack of evidence. It is the heart. It is the heart of the matter. It's the matter of the heart. Do you ever wonder if you were uh, alive at that time in the first century and Jesus was uh, in the midst of his ministry and you were one in the crowd? And think, the question would be, how would I respond to him? What I say, his pedigree isn't right. He just looks like a, a fisherman or a carpenter with sandals. How would you respond to Christ? See, the actual essence of that question is the same today. The offense is just the same. Because it's the commonality that was offensive. It was the reality that he didn't look anything special or do anything remarkable. That's the reason He wasn't accepted. But do you realize that in this moment in history, 
in this moment in the gospel ministry to the 21st century, the essentials are still there. It is the plain preaching of the word. It doesn't look fancy. It doesn't look special. It's to say that God is a great savior and you are a great sinner. That he put his own son on a tree and died in your place for you. For your salvation and his glory. And you say, well that's an idea. But it doesn't sound like anything else anyone else could possibly say. That's the point. What would you rather have? Him show up in all his glory and you die? Or him mediate and show you his glory and glimpse and pieces so that you can come out of your stupor and live. Do you see, there's an actual problem to this. It's not as though, why doesn't God just show up? You don't want him to show up. Like, that's the whole reason of the gospel. If he shows up, that's called game over. Right? Like, some people are atheists. They're like, well, I can't prove God. And he doesn't work within the laws of physics. Yeah, he made physics. Like, it's just not how... You're, not, you're, ask, you're trying to put a square peg in a round hole. That doesn't work. You can't draw a circular triangle. Like, well, why does he show... Because you'll die. That's why I'm preaching the gospel. Because you're sinners and your eyes are dim and broken. But the problem, it doesn't matter if he comes in all his transcendent glory or he comes through his intimate, close relation, even being part of your own city or town. The offense is in the heart. The sin, the corruption. It's a common offense even today. The old um, confession from way back in the beginning of the Reformation, the second uh, Helvetic confession says this actually. The preached word of God is the word of God. And that's the offense. It says this in one of its articles. It says, uh, when the word of God uh, is now preached in the church uh, by preachers lawfully called, we believe that the very word of God is proclaimed. But it can't be. It just sounds too common. And the messenger is too faulty. That's true. But it's true. That when the word of God is preached, that is the word of God. I'd like to hear God shout from heaven. No, you don't. He is being loving to you. He has instituted a whole church and a movement of 2,000 years in which to mediate the word of God, the true word of God in common speech, just like he came in love. The word of God put on common flesh. But that is the word of God. But it's so offensive. 1 Corinthians one twenty-two. Paul says, the Jews look for a sign, and the Greeks, they look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block for the Jews, and absolute foolishness to the Greeks. But that is the message. Christ crucified. Christ crucified. Christ crucified again and again. This is the truth. This is the truth. There is no other way to know it except to be freed from your sin, to see it for what it is. 
Other than that, it is no different than the offense that Jesus caused in him actually bringing salvation through the gospel of his own life. It was way, way too, too offensive. It was a stumbling block to all the Jews. They want a sign. They want something more. They want something bigger. They want Sinai. But we know, and God surely knows, they actually don't want Sinai because he did that already before. Tried that route before. Didn't go very well before. And the foolish Greeks, they want wisdom. But they were created by God and they think they have autonomous wisdom when they don't even have an autonomous life. It's irrational foolhardy. My favorite word for it is boulderdash. Because you can say that word and it's not a curse word. But it's stupid. It's just dumb. It's dumb. It's childish. So there's this reality in which uh, the reason for the offense becomes very apparent. Where did this man get these things? As he was teaching in the synagogue. Teaching in the synagogue. So the way the synagogue worked was much like this. It would be actually the reading of scripture and the exposition of scripture. It's important to know why uh, they're offended by that. Because he just finished a bunch of parables. He just finished not doing that. He just finished preaching a bunch of parables that are mysterious and not very clear and ambiguous and nebulous. What we're doing right now is the clearest version of the word of God that you have. The word of God brought to you in exposition. That's exactly what Jesus was doing in the synagogue when they got irritated with him. Even though he clothed his glory and skin. And he tried so best not to offend our sinful sensibilities. Even then when he just simply gives the word clearly and plainly. Oh, they don't like that. The heart of the matter. Is the matter of the heart. In Matthew 13, 13, they ask particularly. All right, the disciples come to Jesus and say. Now, why are you uh, speaking so plainly and clearly to us. When to the crowds you spoke to them all in parables. And Jesus just gives a very straightforward answer. He says. Seeing they do not see. Hearing they do not understand. Their hearts grow dull. Their ears they barely hear. And their eyes they close. He quotes Isaiah 6. Lest seeing with their eyes. Hearing with their ears. And understanding with their heart. They should turn. And I will heal them. Jesus says, that's why I'm speaking in parables. Because they don't want it anyway. Because I'm God and I know they're hard. How do we know that? Next section, he gets up and speaks so clearly from the Torah. And they said, we don't want that. We're offended by you. And Jesus turns around and says, do you see? If I speak to them in parables, they don't understand. And I give them what their selfish hearts want, which is to not know me. And if I speak clearly to them, even coming down like them to not offend them, I'll even be a Nazarene, why not? And what do they say? We're offended by you. There is no way. Do you see the dilemma? When people say, I wish I could know God, I wish I... This is the whole history of humanity is solving this problem. The whole gospel is this. How does he show himself to you when you don't want, without killing you? (laughs) He comes down so you can kill him. Do you see? Like, that's literally how it works. 
The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. If he distances himself and speaks transcendently in parabolic profundity and gives us everything our heart desires so that we'd be blind, deaf, and dull to our own desires of not having him, then fine, we will not have him and the separation remains. If he comes close to us and speaks plainly and teaches straightforward from the scriptures and astonishes everyone and offends them, the distance remains. And we know not God. This perplexing problem comes to a closure as you find the very last words. It says this, and this is just beautiful. Now, you can read this verse from time to time and say, it doesn't make sense why Jesus does this. Now, that's showing us that when you're starting to ask this question, this next verse, you're starting to realize the depth of human depravity. You're starting to realize that it is not an intellectual problem. Look at this verse. He did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Normally, you would say, hey, do some miracles. Everyone will be really impressed and they'll think you're God. That would be a, normally you would think, I wish I could see a a sign, something to say, this guy's not just a carpenter's son. This verse is opening the depths of the gospel right here. Jesus knows that doesn't matter. Mark says it even more clearly. It says he could do no miracle there because of their unbelief. Herman Ritterboss, a New Testament scholar, says this. It's mutually independent. On one hand, a miracle is used to serve to strengthen faith in Jesus Christ. On the other hand, without faith, if there's no faith, there's no room for a miracle. They have to come together. If you have no faith, you have no miracle. If you have faith, you can get a miracle, which even encourages your faith to believe more. Do you see how they're mutually mutually independent? He says, there's no question that Jesus possesses the power to perform the miracle. The point of the verse is it's saying, it is not within his scope of his ministry. He is not in the ministry or in the business right now of doing signs and wonders to demonstrate himself to people. Even though he could. Without faith, it would simply be an act of power without interpretation. It would be, I don't know, like going to the west coast and looking at the sunset and saying there is no God. You see, is that, does that ever happen? Yes. Nuclear bombs, fission and fusion, a massive ball of burning bright light, light years away, and you say there's no God? So what if he heals another blind man? What else do you need, you see? That's the point. Without faith, no great act of power. Any miracle at all is just a raw act of power that can be reinterpreted in some other fashion. There was no faith, so he did no miracles. Jesus always rejects these tests. He's always being tested. Matthew 4, Satan tests him. Throw yourself from the pinnacle. They'll command angels concerning you. He says, no, I will not put God to the test. Matthew 12, the scribes come to him and say, we wish to see a sign from you. 
And Jesus says, an adulterous generation, one doesn't love or know the one true God, they look for a sign. There'll be no sign given to him except the sign of Jonah, which is the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. That's it. That's all you're going to get. That's all you actually need, as we see at the end. Matthew 16, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they come to Jesus and say, we uh, seek to see a sign from you. Now they particularly say, to see a sign from heaven. That is, one of those Mount Sinai things. Do that Mount Sinai thing. Do the theatrical, theological fireworks. Make the, the sky turn dark and, and lightning and thunder and the trumpet. And Could you scare us a little bit? We'd like to see a show. Then we might believe you. Jesus doesn't do it. He resists all these tests. Because he knows it means nothing. Without faith. Without love of God. Without a new heart, you see. And we can praise God as we close this final test that he did not accept this final test that was given him. Matthew 27. It says, It came to a place called Kilgotha. They offered him wine mixed with gall. And he refused to drink it. And so... They crucified him. They set him beside two robbers. They cast lots for his garments. They put a sign above his head that said, King of the Jews. Those who were passing by derided him. And they said, You who said you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, bring yourself down from there. Come down from that cross if you are the Son of God. The Pharisees come by and say, He who saved others, let him save himself. They mock. Let him come down from that cross. Then we will believe you. Do you realize the gospel is the very fact that he saved you by not coming down from that cross. He saved you. Not to give you a test or a sign that you might believe. But that he would give you a life by which you would have faith in. That he would atone for all your sins and change your heart. To give you a new humanity, a new sight, a new vision where you could look at a cross, you could look at Jesus through the scriptures, transported 2,000 years ago, and have more faith than the man who saw him resurrected three days later. Because it says in Matthew that they saw him resurrected and some did not believe. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. He had to die. He had to bear all the wrath of God and he had to come back alive in glory, the glory that he hid for all those years so that he could pour out his spirit on this whole world for thousands of years to come. He knows the beginning from the end. I will give you a new heart Ezekiel says, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and you will walk in my ways. And everything you see will be in my father's world. And you will know me. You will love me. And you'll believe me in everything. 
I will open your blind eyes. That's why Jesus doesn't play tests. He is the Savior. He is not a science project. Dear Father God, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this wisdom, Father. We ask, Father, that you would have us in our hearts, these hearts that you have begun to save and sanctify and change our minds and our thinking, that we would see this beautiful world you made in the realm of your glory. Father, we pray that we would lay these hearts bare before you now as we take communion, before you in such a way so that we know that all our sins are laid bare before you and that we know all our sins are washed away with that blood. So Lord, let us enter into this as true children of God. In Jesus' name, amen.